I'm giving you a choice. Either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. I already am eating from the trash can all the time. The name of this trash can is ideology. The material force of ideology makes me not see what I'm effectively eating. It's not only our reality which enslaves us. The tragedy of our predicament when we are within ideology is that when we think that we escape it into our dreams, at that point, we are within ideology. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. If you've seen our cover art for our podcast, it's a scene from They Live, which is a cult 80s movie that resonates so much with both of us and about what this podcast is about, which is a mix of violence, pro wrestling, fighting, and leftism. And in particular, there's an incredible fight scene that might be the best fight scene in movies of all time. Really? I think it was John Carpenter's way of saying, you know, sometimes fighting solves everything, right? Always. (laughs) Always. Or we like to believe it does, right? That's the thing. Like people who like combat sports, it's because it's it's that fantasy that, you know, maybe we could just solve this with fighting, you know? Or if nothing else, if it's a good fight scene, it's really satisfying. So today we're going to break down that iconic fight scene. If you want to talk about just the philosophical side of it, Slava Zizek does a great breakdown you can find on YouTube or the complete movie Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Even before Bernie Sanders or Chapo Trap House, he was kind of already the guy who was rejuvenating the young left because there were so many intellectuals on the right, these new right-wing intellectuals. But who was the guy on the left? And we couldn't find anybody in the U.S. And then it turned out to be this guy from Europe named Slavage that had a lot of interesting, memeable things to say. And so you should definitely check out some of his work. It's funny as fuck sometimes. And it's also very philosophical. And so is this movie, They Live. And so is this fight scene. So we're going to break it down more like from a fight perspective. But, but even before we break it down, you should definitely check this movie out. It's not hard to find. If you Google it, you can find a version of it streaming somewhere. Because it's like, it's almost like those kind of really important documentaries. So people want it to be online somewhere. So they'll always stream it somewhere. So you could always find it that way. Or you could pay a couple bucks and watch it on, on one of those streaming sites and do it legit. You just watched it recently, right, Paul? Yeah, it's always been a favorite of mine, and it's always worth revisiting every now and then, so every other year. And this is a movie that I think now the left is starting to reclaim, especially because of Zizek, but it was a leftist movie, and then we kind of abandoned it for, I don't know, highbrow, hoity-toity fucking movies that don't have any leftist message. And so it started getting picked up by people on the alt-right 
to try to say it's kind of a movie about, I don't know, racial purity or something. I don't know what exactly where they're coming up with their interpretation. So, but really, even John Carpenter, he said it was a movie that was a fuck you to unchecked capitalism and a fuck you to Ronald Reagan. Actually, you see an alien Ronald Reagan in the movie. And you see Roddy Piper's character saying something like, of course, of course, he's an alien, you know? And I think it's also important to note that the movie in itself seems like a philosophical awakening. But in reverse of the allegory of the cape where the character escapes the cape to see the light, John Nada puts on the glasses so he's back in darkness and he sees things in black and white. Is that his name, John Nada? It is John Nada. I mean, we know that because we're fans of the movie, but do they ever actually say that in the movie? Not that I could think of, but when I look it up on Wikipedia, it says Roddy Piper as John Nada. I was like, okay, I'll go with that. No, even at the end of the movie in the credits, you see his name as Nada. I don't even know about the John part, but I don't know if, if you watch the movie, if they ever say what his name is. You know, that's a good point because I've always identified him as Roddy Piper. In the movie, I just assumed he plays that working man character. But I don't know if we were ever introduced to his name. And at the end, Nada, it's just this, because it takes place in LA, is saying he's nothing. He doesn't exist or he's an everyman or a no man. I'm not exactly sure. But I think part of why his name ends up being nothing and also you never get to hear his name is to say that he is that blue collar American as a version of John Doe. But instead of John Doe, it's John nothing. It's just a random John. It could be anybody. (laughs) That sounds fucked up. But he's nobody in particular. That's how I took it. But to be fair, how many guys look like Roddy Piper back in the 80s? Everybody looked like Roddy Piper in the 80s. I think that's, well, they didn't. But but that's maybe how they saw themselves as this like (laughs) guy with like feathered hair, and ripped, you know, and a believable tough guy. Yeah, like he was the spark that they needed in order to get things moving. Because before the movement seemed to happen, but it wasn't until he came along that they could actually execute it. Yeah, they needed a little bit of uh, that grit, that like kind of working class muscle. You know, what's funny about Piper's acting career is that the way he acts is different from his wrestling persona. His wrestling persona was super funny. But in acting, if you ever watch stuff he does, he's so straight and serious. He didn't carry over his charisma. And that's just my aside. But I think if Piper added that humor that he had in wrestling to his acting career, he would have went a lot further. Well, he'll always have this to fall back on because it's a classic. And I think people will be talking about it for years and years if they haven't already. Because... Another thing I noticed while rewatching the fight scene, it almost seemed like a prototype of what John Wick ended up doing, where you see the action in its entirety. There's no cutscenes where people fake it or it edits out to, oh, it looks like you took a punch. Oh, it looks like you fell. Because the way they shoot the whole thing, it's almost as if it's done in one shot or very minimal editing. Like, there's no way to fake it. Like You could tell like these guys took a lot of hits in order to get to where the scene ends up going. Matrix bit a lot out of this movie. A lot of the same ideas in The Matrix was already present in this movie. 
And actually, in fact, if you want to get into the the academic part about this B movie and the Matrix, I would recommend reading guys like Neil Postman, Noam Chomsky, Jean Baudrillard, Slavoj Žižek, like I mentioned before, and Guy Debord. They all wrote stuff in this space talking about the messaging we're getting, the manufacturing of our beliefs, that we really don't know what authentic living or reality is. So yeah, check those guys out. If nothing else, just to read another book or read more books. We need to read more books anyway. There's actually also a really cool rant at the beginning of the movie by a priest that basically was like saying everything that Bernie Sanders was saying in his run. Hey, future me, insert the rant by the priest right here. Well, what does future mean? You ever see Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? That was before my time. No, I think it was the sequel, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, but it's like time travel movie where you're making a note to your future self to save you in the past. So I'm telling my future self who's going to be editing this to add in whatever I need him to add in. And then so to the viewer, it'll be like, boom, there it is. They have taken the hearts and minds of our leaders. They have recruited the rich and the powerful. And they have blinded us to the truth. Our human spirit is corrupted. Why do we worship greed? Because outside the limit of our sight, feeding off us, perched on top of us from birth to death, are our owners. Our owners. They have us. They control us. They are our masters. Wake up. They're all about you, all around you. Actually, podcasting is kind of like time travel, where when I'm editing, I'm interacting with my past self. So I'm going to use that to my advantage and tell my future self what to do. So fuck you, future self. I'm going to give you more work to do (laughs) so I can save myself time now. Actually, my wife says something funny. She watched it for the first time the other day, and she was like, is this what you got to do? Is this what you got to do to get people woke now? Because... There is this difficulty in getting people to open their eyes to get, quote unquote, woke. And that is what this fight is about. It's like, shit, man, it ain't easy. And not only that, going back to the allegory of the cave, it's not even that when they get out of the cave, it's painful. They don't even want to get out of the cave sometimes. So Roddy Piper is literally trying to drag the character of Keith David out of the cave to see the light. And Keith David's like, no, fuck you. I don't want to go. But they even cut out five minutes of the fight scene. So it was going to be like 16 minutes or something. Jesus. I I read that they trained for the six to eight weeks just for this fight scene. That's the way things should be done. Because now when you see fight scenes, it's just, okay, we're going to haphazardly throw some punches. But don't worry, it won't land. We'll just shoot it from a different angle and we'll spice it together. You never get the sense that he's not really going to be able to punch somebody properly. But for they live, they couldn't fake it. Somebody really got suplexed onto the concrete. Like somebody really got lifted in the air. Whether it was, I think there was two, if I'm not mistaken. One belly to belly. And the other were, I think Keith David grabbed Roddy Piper and just slammed him on his back. (laughs) And they ended up in this weird side control, but not really position. You know, people say pro wrestling is fake. This fight is the most pro wrestling looking fight in a movie. 
And this is the one we consider the most realistic. So that's interesting. Then what the fuck are they doing when they do try to do other fight scenes where they're quote unquote trying to make it look realistic? It actually looks less realistic. So in actuality, then even pro wrestling, yeah, you know it's fake. But what people are watching feels real. You feel that emotion and drama. And that's what like a lot of pro wrestling matches are. One guy's like, I need to kick your ass to show you something. The other guy's like, no, I need to kick your ass to show you something. Or they're just saying, no, I'm not going to let you kick my ass because I don't want to see nothing. There's always the storyline going in pro wrestling. And this was really a pro wrestling match. Roddy Piper was the face. And sometimes you see this played out in pro wrestling matches where two good guys have to fight. But it's like one good guy is on the side of good. And the other guy, the other good guy is mistakenly on the wrong side. So the good guy needs to kick his ass to get him to join the team. Because the idea in pro wrestling, just like in this fight scene, is fighting is going to solve everything. Just like the allegory of the cave, there's a lot of moments in this fight scene where one character is picking the other character up. They're going to help them. Here, fella, let me help pick you up, right? It's almost like, let me drag you out of that cave. Here, give me your hand. Let me drag you. Only to get sucker punched. In a real fight, if you've beaten the guy so badly, you either keep going until somebody stops you, or that's it, or you walk away. But these guys will beat someone to the ground, wait, pick them up, and then start fighting again. It's like the cycle continues, and then the other guy will gain the upper hand. And then it's always one or two cheap shots. Whether it's, I'm going to fake an attack and hit you with something else. Like that scene where Keith David drops his sunglasses and fakes like he's going to step on it. So Roddy Piper looks down and boom, shin to face. There's literal truth and metaphoric truth. So a lot of times, the more realistic you try to make the fight in a pro wrestling match, the less people will believe it, believe it or not. Because a real fight won't convince their emotions. Whereas a pro wrestling fight with all the emotions, then you're like, okay, there's some kind of truth to this. And that's what this fight does. Would they do that in a real fight? I don't know. But you're in it with them because of the emotions. You get what's going on. This guy wants the other guy to put on sunglasses and the other guy doesn't want to put him on. And actually, if you haven't seen this movie, that's a big part of the movie. You put on these sunglasses and you can see the world for the way it is. You're, you're able to bypass the matrix and see all the code see what's really going on in a lot of ways nothing has really changed if you look at la where you see the homeless encampments and people barely scraping by there's no real jobs things have shut down keith david's character at one point talks about how he's from detroit and he worked at steel mill they closed down but all the executives at the top got raises that still seems topical. That, that much hasn't changed at all. It's not even changing. It predicted because actually those kind of tenements and uh, homeless encampments didn't exist back then. We have those now. So this movie was saying this is what's going to eventually happen with Reaganomics. That's this this is going to be the backlash. Yeah. And even with steel companies, you have steel companies now closing down because of the Trump tax tariffs. So, yeah, this was like predicting everything. It's going to be interesting if people can rewatch this with a different set of eyes. Because people who were born in the 80s, like late 80s, like I was, 
I saw this movie way past that. So I was already in high school when I saw it, and it was only because I was a big pro wrestling fan. So people like my younger siblings who haven't had a chance to really look at it might see this differently. And they say, oh, outside of the old camera work and kind of stated dialogue, the topic is still relevant. Like not that much has changed. If anything, it's gotten worse. And he said, this was made in the 80s. Was it that bad back in the day? This movie is definitely not a movie about plot. It's a movie about ideas. And a lot of the ideas are genius. A lot of the acting and the way the movie was made is kind of B, but that's what gives it charm. If it was an A movie, we're not going to remember it. It's not going to be nearly as memorable. Whereas when you do a B movie, you get more freedom to not follow the rules because you're like, look, it's not going to be A plus in all these other ways. So I already don't have to live up to those expectations. So what I will do is give you all these kind of interesting ideas to think about. And I'm going to put it into these scenes that are going to be memorable that people can splice up and make into its own YouTube vignettes. I think the ultimate compliment any show, movie, person can get is, have you been featured on South Park? <laughs> yep, that's, that's the pinnacle. And Roddy Piper for years was ashamed of that because he actually didn't watch the scene where Timmy and Jimmy fight. Because he just heard it and it sounded terrible. Like, these two handicapped kids are recreating a scene. I can't do this. But it wasn't until he met a much younger fan who talked about it and showed it to him. He was like, oh, this is great. Why did I avoid it for so long? They did it scene by scene, almost line by line. That's what I heard. Fight! At the beginning of the fight scene, when they're in that alleyway parking lot, the first punch thrown is by Keith David. And it's the right jab. And then you realize, oh, shit, he's left-handed. He's a southpaw. That was perfect for us. Actually, every part of this movie, from the sci-fi to the anime influence to the pro wrestling to the fighting, is indicative of the show. But it also happened that one of the main characters was left-handed. So he was fighting Roddy Piper left-handed. But actually, I think later on, he even starts switching stances. He's a switch stance fighter. He is. And it's funny, when he offers Roddy Piper his hand to get up before he beats him even more, it's with his left hand. Almost like, hey, it's okay, I got you. Psych! Actually, that's more realistic, though. That was the scene that he had to switch stances, because if he is a true lefty, of course he's going to reach out with his left hand to help somebody up. But then that forces him to hit him with his right. So he had to switch stances. And in... MMA, and even sometimes in boxing, a lot of left-handed fighters end up learning to fight from both sides because they're forced to. Righties, they usually tend to end up fighting just right-handed, which is the orthodox stance. But left-handed fighters, they can kind of go both ways, which is kind of true about actually a lot of leftists. Not liberals, but leftists where they can kind of go both ways in some aspects. Like they understand a lot of this like populist rage, they like a lot of the same stuff the young right likes. They grew up on the same YouTube videos and South Park. So they understand those aspects. So they could switch not their political stances, but like they could code switch, I guess. And that's what left-handed fighters can do. They have their dominant side where they have their power hand. But if they need to, they know how to get into that mind frame of the orthodox fighter. Because in a way, I think a moderate isn't really the guy in the middle who could kind of take both stances. I think it is the leftist 
Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about it from a boxing point of view, Miguel Cotto and De La Hoya are both guys that are left-handed in real life, but they fight orthodox. So they always put their power hand forward. And then you got guys like Krokop and Jerome LeBanner who are right-handed guys, but they fight southpaw because it's easier. If you're a true fighter where you had no dominant stance, you'd actually be terrible. But if you did have a dominant stance, but you could switch, then you're much more of a dangerous fighter. You're everyone's nightmare because at any point, if you are a left-handed person, but you fight orthodox, your lead hand is so much stronger and you give them problems that way. And then you switch hit and now the guy isn't quite sure where you're going to come from and what angle you're going to take. Look at TJ Dillashaw. Little known fact, but the majority of UFC fighters, the winningest fighters tend to be left-handed fighters. And the, if you look at their championships, who've held the titles, a lot of times it's disproportionately left-handed fighters. So, you know, leftists, we have a, we have a rich history in fighting. We got to own this. People who like fighting don't want to own up to their leftist ideals. And people on the left don't want to own up to the fact that they like combat sports. We got to own up. There's a rich history of that. And it goes way back even politically, right? With Muhammad Ali. You could even go back and further to like even Joe Lewis. You needed to get to the 60s to get to Muhammad Ali. Joe Lewis couldn't have done that. Otherwise, he would have died. They would have killed him. You know, it's funny that you mentioned about Muhammad Ali and Joe Lewis, but in their own way, you had to fight for a lot of these things that people consider radical or liberal ideas, whether it's a minimum wage, decent working hours, civil rights, women's rights, because they weren't handed and you could only protest for so long. At some point, you had to fight for them. There's no way you could sit idly by and let's meet in the middle. Let's compromise. Certain things you just had to I don't want to say violently take back what's yours, but you had to go out of your way and do things that are uncomfortable. Be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Before I was ever politically, not conscious, more like cared about politics at all, I loved fighting. So it would have made much more sense for me to have been more right-leaning, but I think it is my love of fighting and combat sports and growing up in the martial arts, but also like my critical thinking, that is the reason why that I ended up more on the left. And also that kind of critical thinking is also why I look at fights differently. I think about it in multiple layers. There's the initial attack, then there's the counter. And that's where most people end, is black and white, the attack and the counter. But then there's more. There's the counter to the counter. And then there's the counter to the counter to the counter, which sounds crazy, but really good fighters can do that. And really good analysts can break those multiple layers of fighting down. And it's the same thing with how I ended up on the left. Let me break it down real simply. What is the left and what is the right? It's really confusing right now. Neither are monoliths, but at its historical core, the right believes that all problems can be solved by you as an individual. So individual freedoms are what's most important. Whereas the left believes Nope, there are some problems that you cannot solve on your own. And sometimes you do need a systematic change. So that's why I say it's really the leftists that could do both stands. They understand both of that. One side is, it's kind of both. The other side is only one way. Then what the fuck is the middle? 
like if we use Dungeons and Dragons alignment, they wouldn't be true neutral. They would be more like lawful right or something like that. Would you say they're lawful evil more than lawful right? If you're a moderate? Yeah, because then they say, well, we need a compromise at all costs. So if one side is saying racial, excuse me, racial equality and the other side is saying eradication of a certain race or racial purity, what is the middle ground for that? It's still some form of ethnic cleansing. So that's not exactly, I would say, lawful good. It would just be, that's lawful evil. Well, yeah, <laughs> Vietnam's a great example of that, where the where the far right were saying, let's nuke it. And then the leftists were like, leave them alone. Let them do what they want. And then the centrists, the radical centrists were like, hey, hey, you guys are both equally insane and extreme. So what we're going to do is invent something called Agent Orange and Napalm. And we're going to drop more bombs than all of World War II combined. All right? Because the adults in the room have to figure this out. And we're going to do it for their own good. So that was moderation. That was centrism in Vietnam. So in that sense, yeah, it is more like evil. Because at least if you said, let's nuke everybody, I know where you stand. It's like, holy shit, that's a terrible idea. And I could try to work from there. But if you've already come to the conclusion that, no, we're going to systematically kill people using Agent Orange, that's more terrifying because you've had time to think things through and this was the conclusion you came to. It's like uh, the difference between like somebody who kills out of passion, like anger, versus the sociopath who's like cold and calculating in their murder. <laughs> Maybe that cold and calculating sociopath. Okay, oh yeah, that's the moderate. They're the, the cool-headed person who will kill for cold-blooded reasons, not because of heated passion. It's kind of like almost the worst people in They Live aren't the aliens themselves. You know why they're doing it. They're treating humans like cattle. So to them, we're like pets. But it's the people, the humans that side with the aliens who say, well, what's wrong with that? Why can't we get a little slice of the pie? What? How do you justify that? Actually, this is the only movie where I've seen aliens portrayed like capitalists. So when you see the alien meeting in the movie, it's a uh, shareholders meeting where they're talking, they're going over percentages of profit they've made they call Earth a third world planet. So this is a planet that they use for resources to build up more intergalactic wealth. Basically saying billionaires are like aliens, and they kind of are, because they're so far removed from what is normal to us that I don't know if it's possible for them to even think like regular people. There was that famous experiment or questionnaire that if they asked celebrities the average price of groceries, they had no idea. So if they said, how much is a loaf of bread? They would give outrageous answers where it's like 10 cents. It's like, no, is it $10? What? Because they don't know. They don't go to the grocery store. Somebody else does it for them. Because the regular world is alien to them. Yeah. But we don't take them as aliens. They think of us as aliens. Why don't we think of them as aliens? Yeah, the concept of bad almost doesn't, I guess, enter their mind because... For a certain while, it becomes we should protect the environment because this is the only one we have. We need to live. Whereas the super wealthy might say, well, okay, let's just do it. And what's the fine going to cost? Let's just pay that. It's still cheaper than us changing our entire mindset and worldview. So earlier I was explaining the core differences at its simplest form of the left and the right and the idea of 
individual problems versus societal problems. And that's why a lot of times the right aligns with self-help because it's always this idea of like, the system's not the problem, you're the problem, so fix yourself. And yeah, sometimes you could be the problem. And sometimes the system itself is a problem too, and that needs to change. I, I can't remember what philosopher said this, but one of the best forms of self-help is activism. Keeping that idea in mind, how would somebody, maybe Paul's like this too, growing up loving pro wrestling and fighting and martial arts and boxing, end up on the left? So I wasn't born in the U.S. I came here when I was young, legally, okay? Anyways, <laughs> so one of the things that you wanted to make friends and you wanted to be accepted and, and you need that community to be healthy mentally and to survive. But also, maybe my attraction to fighting was there was like this internal rage or rebellion or anti-authority or like whatever the sentiment that punk rock has. It's like kind of like, fuck you, you know, whatever you got, I'm against, right? So there is also this individuality to it. But then if I meet somebody and they don't like minorities or they don't like immigrants or they don't like Koreans, but then through whatever, they make an exception because they think I've earned it because we're training together or, you know, I'm cool in some way, then they're like, okay, Sam, you're an exception. We'll bring you into the fold. We accept you as an individual, not everybody else, but you. And so a lot of Asians and minorities on the right are like, that's fine. As long as you take me, that's all, that's all good. But that's almost like being the house pet. Now we're getting into multiple layers where it's the same kind of rage or kind of like anti-authority people might on the right have, but I will think through it deeper or I'm going to go even further than that or maybe even more pure in a way where instead of just saying, fuck you until you accept me, it's more like I'm an exception, right? You're like making an exception for me, but not everybody else that's like me. And I'm supposed to thank you. I'm supposed to thank you because you excluded me first, but you finally let me in. Like it's a fraternity or like it's one of those, you know, like elitist things that don't let people in. And then you finally let me in and I'm supposed to kiss your ass. Like, fuck you. And so that same thing that existed in me that says fuck you to that is the same reason why I like fighting. And so that's why it doesn't make sense then those same kind of aggressive or kind of like rebellious people. Once they get accepted, they're like cool with it because they only think about one layer. But it's like, dude, they're only accept they're making an exception for you. But they were like, fuck you. You weren't good enough at the beginning. Oh, now I want you to do all these stupid human pet tricks. Oh, now I want you to jump through all these hoops. Okay, now I'll accept you. That means that you're accepting that they're better than you. And you're so happy that they've taken you in, right? Where it's like, they're not better than me. Those same interests that should have made me right wing is actually what made me left wing because I could see through that kind of like they live like kind of like the the day woke glasses like like almost have to like have to try to wake up my friend who thinks that's cool because he finally got in and now he thinks he's better than everybody else I have to let him know dude they still think they're better than you man you're not accepted because you have to prove to them that you were acceptable because they already believe they're better than you. And now that they've taken you in, they still believe they're better than you. You're just kind of an exception that they'll tolerate. There's layers to this game. There's levels to this game. It's the same way I think about like when people break down fighting, they 
especially like people who have a very traditional background in martial arts, the way sometimes they look at a professional fight is so simplistic. It's just black or white angels and demons. It's also interesting because my, I guess I don't say journey to the left, but it's more my self-realization about how fighting solves everything is because much like you, I also came here legally from another country, but it's hard when you don't speak the language, you don't look like the people. And fighting was always the great equalizer because no matter who your parents were, how much money they made, or where you went to school, in a fight, I stood a good chance at not just being your equal, but in sometimes I was lucky enough to be your superior. So it was a good way, especially as kids, you learn to recognize and see each other almost on the same playing field. Because if it came down to parents' wealth, I would get crushed. If it came down to what car they drove, I wouldn't even be in the same ballpark. But if they had a disagreement with me and I didn't like their point of view, I can always solve it with my fists. And if I was at least able to give a good showing or give it back just as good, then they couldn't dismiss me as much anymore. They couldn't just brush me aside and say, well, he's nobody because the bruised eye or the busted lip or the hurt ribs can attest to, okay, we should take Paul seriously or, okay, if he says something, then maybe there's something to it. So I also realized, hey, this could be a good metaphor for everything and people shouldn't be dismissed so quickly. A lot of how we got here, I think, is pride, pride in the self, right? There is individualism on the left. I think we're not the only ones. The system is fucked up, but if you make an exception for me, then that's kind of like a handout and saying I wasn't good enough in the first place. And then who are you to say that I have to do these things to be good enough? That means that I have to already buy into the idea that you're better than me and I will never buy into that idea. That is a form of pride how maybe people like us, some people end up on the left. I'll give you an example policy-wise. And this is why I ended up on the left further out than liberal. My problem with liberal is like policy-wise, think about like the way they want to do programs. They want to stay capitalistic and they want to do welfare capitalism. We'll decide who needs what and then we'll give them money if they deserve it. And it's that same type of mentality of who the fuck are you to judge, right? Versus the left is where the ideas are more universal. Just give it to everybody. No handouts, no exceptions for these kind of people, that kind of people. Then nobody can argue that there's going to be selective bias or you're just like treating these people differently. If you give it to everybody, that's why the idea is like of universal income. Because you're not going to figure out who needs it because it's too easy to game anyway. But if everybody gets it, it's harder to complain but also, if everybody gets it, then it's not going to be something enough where you incentivize behavior where people are like, I'm not going to do anything because everybody got it. Then it's just enough as a cushion or a, a barrier or a buffer while you do other things or while you change jobs or change situations. Or because of that, you're able to take a lesser paying job that you might enjoy more. Liberals often hate leftists because they share a lot in common with people on the right as well, as far as like the kind of same resentments or pride. That is true. And then there's two ways you can go with this. 
you're like, give it to everybody. And the other side is like, give it to nobody. But in its own way, then it's still universal. Nobody gets it. Everybody gets it. Whereas this liberal response of you have to earn. It's the same thing with like superdelegates. It's like, we'll decide what's best for you guys. And I think that's something that people dislike so much that they're willing to go to this like other extreme that may be ultimately against their own best interest. But they're like, fuck it. At least if I burn my car down, nobody else can take advantage of it. I know it includes myself, but it's more important that I didn't get taken advantage of than for me to even enjoy this thing. That sentiment I get, what's probably better is we all get the car. (laughs) And it's so weird because it goes along the mindset, especially with social programs. Well, some people might take advantage of it, so we shouldn't offer it. And people take advantage of things all the time, but it doesn't stop us from enacting it. It'll be similar to saying, well, you can't have universal basic income because some people will take advantage and not work or game the system. That's like saying, well, Republicans who get caught taking bribes saying, oh, well, some people can do this. So therefore, we shouldn't have any type of Senate. You don't see that. Or especially with the Catholic Church where they say, well, it's just a couple of bad priests. You can't dismiss the whole system. But well, why can't you say that for any other type where it helps people? Because if you go with the train of thought that it's just a few bad apples, like, is that really the case or is it more the system that needs to be changed? Well, I think this is different in that if we're just talking about basic income, that's still kind of putting like restrictions or expectations of what they should do with that money. If they want to just, I don't know, find an apartment that's like $400 a month and pay a couple hundred bucks a month for food and they just live off of, let's say, a basic income of $1,000 and they're just going to live off of that. That's their choice. This is where we have to be libertarian about that. And that's the thing I learned from martial arts. And not just all martial arts, but more of like this mixing of martial arts or the martial arts that Bruce Lee was a proponent of. With techniques, we have to be libertarian about it, meaning let people do what they do, give them that freedom, and then let's see what happens. But then the dojo is socialistic. However you treat one person is the same way everybody else has to be treated. Because it started out in communes. It started out in temples. So it's equally libertarian as it is socialistic. So it's the same way with income. It's like, we're going to have bad apples. No, we're not going to have any bad apples because it doesn't matter how they use it. It's none of our business. So if they use it just for drugs or they use it to just live off of and they never get another job, that's their choice. It becomes a problem though, if we deemed certain people are deserving of it and then they don't prove to be so, then that creates a problem because we already set expectations of why they deserve to get it and then they don't live up to it. Whereas You don't need to have like people checking to see if they're doing welfare fraud if we do universal basic income because there will be no such thing as welfare fraud because everybody gets it regardless. It's universal. You can't unget it. So you can't, by definition, you can't have a bad apple because what the fuck do we care how they use it? We all get it anyway. I got it. It's not even like you have to buy into what I'm saying. Just the way our brain works because I got it also. What do I care what you did with yours? If we both got apples and you threw your apple to the floor, what does it matter to me? I still have my apple. 
Whereas I didn't get an apple and you did, and I saw you throw it on the floor, then yeah, human psychology wise, that would bother me. If you think about bribes or whatever, these are like select few people who get something. Or you talk about people taking an advantage of something or bad apples. It's because we already pre-selected which groups were going to get something. And then they don't live up to our criteria. Then yeah, that makes sense. But when it's universal, there is no criteria. That's why even billionaires like Elon Musk agree, even though he's problematic and he's got all kinds of problems and fucked over his shareholders. But cold libertarian economic logic and behavioral economics tells you if you give it to everybody, then you won't have that same resentment. Whatever we all don't get, we don't think of that as unfair. Like we don't all get eternal life. So because none of us have it, it's not something that causes a lot of resentment. Because the same way, if we all don't have something or we all have something, it just becomes normal. It just becomes like air, something we've always lived with. So we don't think about it. But I will think about it if I don't have it and you have it. Going back to the fight, while they're fighting, they're talking. Piper is trying to convince him, put these on. And Keith David is trying to tell him no. I think it's a good metaphor for when people resist when confronted with the truth. Because sometimes you don't want to see it. It's like Obama in that Flint water crisis where they thought for sure, well, he's on his way. He's going to clear this up. And he ended up trying to reassure the people that, oh, everything's fine. Let me take a sip of this. See, everything's good. And then he went back to it. It's almost like you don't want to see the truth, but it's right there in front of you. And you have to violently now realize no one's going to do this for me. I'm going to have to take it. Now, I don't think this movie is telling people they need to like beat up their friend to get them to wake up. This is all allegory. This is all metaphor. This is what John Carpenter, when he wrote this, must have been feeling when he was trying to tell. He's just like, what the fuck do I got to do to you to get into your head that trickle down economics doesn't work? It must have been the frustration of you just give people facts and figures. And he believed that that would change people's minds and realize, oh, shit, it doesn't change shit. And it's the same thing we're realizing now. You could do civil discourse. You could do a debate. It doesn't matter. When people make up their minds, they made up their minds. And the more you try to change their minds, the more they'll double down. And so I think this was also the filmmakers' frustrations coming out on film. This gratuitously long fight scene with all his rage and anger of trying to get people to wake the hell up, in particular about Reagan. And this was like the resistance he was meeting. Not only were they resisting, they were like kicking his ass too. They were kicking his ass for telling the truth. And there's that scene where Keith David tries to get up after kneeing Piper in the groin multiple times. And then he does this scissor sweep. I don't know what it's called in pro wrestling. And he just trips up Keith David. Then he picks up a two by four, which is just randomly on the ground. And he swings it over his head, almost kills him, realizes his mistake, drops it. And he says, like, my bad. Yeah, I never thought that drop-down trip in pro wrestling, it never looked that believable. And, but in this fight, it looked real. Yeah. Everything looked real. Yeah, Keith David does more pro wrestling than Roddy Piper. Yeah, he did the sidewalk slam. The foot stomp. But Piper did the gut wrench suplex. 
the thing is also he used more moves and holds in this fight scene, which he helped choreograph. Whereas in pro wrestling, he did more of the movie fights where it's just like punching and kicking the shit out of his opponents. So it's weird how he has more of a movie star, funny, anti-hero character in pro wrestling. And then in movies, he's like super serious. Yeah, just a lot of that pro wrestling thing where they're both tired and then he's just barely trying to get up and it's like, and it kind of gives them time to breathe. They incorporated the pro wrestling false finishes where you think the match is over, but it's not. So they were able to use those pro wrestling, like what they call pop psychology, effectively in this fight scene. You know, in the movie, the aliens were calling the people with the sunglasses who could see them. They were calling them commies. Yes, they were. So that's funny. And then the, the bad guys are the capitalists. And it makes sense. It was in the 80s. So they used the fear of communism to scare people. It's like the opposite of uh, zombie movies like George Romero stuff where the zombies were supposed to be like commies infiltrating the U.S. Then this movie is like from the perspective of the commies trying to take down the capitalists. Yeah, it's a good fear mongering tactic. They say they're commies. And then that's it. It ends the debate. There's no real reason to explore more of their thought process. The fight scene used a lot of long shots where you see everything instead of, you know, where it's blurred up. So they had to do everything real. It has some of the best looking punches I've seen in movie fighting. Yeah, the last time I saw this off the top of my head is in Creed when... I believe Michael B. Jordan's character was fighting Rosario, and then they did that camera angle where it was just that 360, but then you couldn't fake it. They had to do it in one take. Yeah, and, and you used a lot of like one takes where it was, the camera was on the action for a while. Now, more people are starting to do that. It got made famous by this other movie called Old Boy, did a long fight scene, one shot, one take. But really, They Live did that first. That's a pioneer. And also, to make it more real, Roddy Piper told Keith David to really punch him. But instead of hitting him hard in the face, they kind of hit each other in the, the traps or like kind of right below the neck so that you were making real contact, but weren't like giving each other brain damage or knocking each other out. So that was kind of a cool thing where make real contact instead of just selling it with the camera angles and the movements which is what they do in pro wrestling anyway, is they'll make real contact, just not in the face. Or if they do, right before they hit your face, they open their palms and it just becomes a slap. The hitting is real. The pain is real. But the sleight of hand is where it's landing. I never realized that at one point, Keith David bites Roddy Piper. It's like, uh, who's that guy? Mike Kyle, when you bit West Sims the chest. But it worked. He got out. Well, that was like a total heel move. And what was interesting was that in the fight, they both started adopting heel moves where they weren't going to go that dirty. And then it started getting dirty. Like at first, Roddy Piper wasn't going to hit him in the groin. And then he decided, fuck that. I'm going to hit him in the groin. And then later on, Keith David not only bites him, but starts kneeing the shit out of his groins as well. And then it turns into a hardcore match with like bottles and weapons and it kind of turns into the history of wrestling where it goes from like what looks like John Wayne fighting to more technical wrestling to the hardcore era 
It's got a bit of everything for everyone, whether you like technical fighting, just striking, pro wrestling, grappling exchanges, or just the good old honest to God, grab them by the throat and pick them up and slam them. Whatever could happen in the real world, it's already happened in pro wrestling. Even in politics, everything we're seeing in politics, they've already done it in pro wrestling. So I wonder when in the mainstream culture and politics, when we're going to get to the AJ Styles era. It's a wrestler that could actually talk, but is really, really technical. Whereas before you had one or the other really technical guys, they weren't good at talking or guys who were really good at talking, but not that good at wrestling. Or sometimes you got like guys like Roman Reigns is not good at any of it, but they're trying to push down your throat. But I think that's what the young kids are becoming. They are becoming the AJ Styles. They know the Japanese style just as well as the American style. They know the memes and the anime, but they also know American politics. So I think this fight scene is kind of like a slice of time of the transition from sleeping to wokeness. Maybe Gen Z is the Roddy Piper character and the older liberals are essentially the Keith Davis trying to resist, but eventually... They'll come around. We just got to own the libs for a while. Own the libs. Own the libs.